Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril McAleco. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Frederick Clarkson is a senior research analyst at Political Research Associates, a social justice research and strategy center that exposes the agenda and strategies of the U.S. and global right, revealing the dangerous intersections of Christian nationalism, white nationalism, and patriarchy. He has written about politics and religion for four decades. Clarkson is the author, co-author, or editor of several books, including Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. Today we talk about a Christian theocratic movement that wants to build a kingdom revolution led by an army of believers, starting in Pennsylvania, before spreading across the nation, and then the world. Hi, Frederick. Welcome to The Signal. Hi, thanks for having me. Frederick, you recently wrote a piece in Salon titled Unfriending America. The Christian right is coming for the enemies of God, like you and me. In it, you write that many new apostolic reformation leaders are ramping up a contest for theocratic power in the nation and the world in what they call a kingdom revolution led by an army of believers. And their first target is Pennsylvania. Can you explain first what this new apostolic reformation movement is and their role in the broader Christian right? Yeah, the new apostolic reformation is uh, uh, is a uh, is beginning of a, a theological movement, if you will, and a, and a shift in, uh, uh, in in the political thought of Pentecostal and charismatic evangelicalism. Yeah, through most of the 20th century, uh, Pentecostals and most evangelicals were pretty much on the political sidelines since the Scopes trials, because the, the belief was that the, uh, that the that Satan controlled the things of this world, and you didn't want to mess around with the things of this world too much, lest you risk your soul. But there was a big theological shift that took place that uh, said that you know good Christians can and should do some things. The only question was how much could be accomplished before Jesus returned. And that opened the door to what we now call the Christian right or sometimes Christian nationalism. But uh, the, the Pentecostal and charismatic wing of this came along separately from uh, the fundamentalists that uh, we most associate with, like Jerry Falwell. But sort of the Pat Robertson uh, wing of the party, of the Republican Party and the movement, uh, the late Pat Robertson televangelist, you know, were, uh, were coming along within their own communities differently. And uh, eventually that, uh, because they're theologically very amorphous, it was hard to, it was like organizing, if you're a politician, it's like organizing kittens, right? So getting people moving in the same theological and political direction was a task. And that was the genius of what the new apostolic reformation was about. It said, all right, we're radicals, we're revolutionaries, we're going to, we don't think that institutional Christianity, the way it's worked for the past 2000 years, works. We think it thwarts the advancement of the kingdom of God as we understand it. And so we're going to reinvent Pentecostalism and evangelicalism and all of Christianity and ultimately the world to be more like what they thought that God and Jesus intended in, in the first century, right? And so they have these uh, only church offices they recognize, and it's not popes and presidents and, and ministers and 
bishops. It's the offices, uh, as discussed in the book of Ephesians, the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, and the evangelist, and, and the pastor. And um, those are the only legitimate church offices. So it's new in the sense that it's a new idea of, of what the apostolic is, right? And it's apostolic in that it recognizes these five church offices. And it's a reformation in the sense that it folded in a lot of the ideas of reformed Christianity has been understood in, in uh, Protestantism for centuries so that they could have a more coherent theology that would justify political action and public policy. So the NAR, it, it's, it's not a denomination, but a kind of a revolutionary theocratic movement? Yes. They're anti-denominational, in fact. Denominations are a part of the problem, right? They're even seen as satanic, right? And... Uh, and are to be uh, neutralized and removed. And, and, and they're led, this movement is led by people who identify as apostles or prophets. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about that? I mean, is this, you know, is there, is this something that's established um, within, um, you know, Christian doctrine that, you know, the, this, a movement like this would be led by someone who would identify as apostles or prophets, or is this some kind of like grift? <laughs> well, I guess it guess depends on how you look at it, but uh, uh, much of, uh, of uh, Christianity is in some sense apostolic insofar as they're following from the apostles, right? Through Jesus' originally followers, you know, the, uh, and, uh, and identify themselves that way, but they don't call their church officers apostles. They think they were the apostles and then that was that. Right. And so this movement, uh, you know, thinks that, uh, yeah, we should, they, God still picks apostles and that, uh, uh, but it's tricky. Like, well, then who is an apostle and how can you tell? And so it's sort of like, I think the fairest understanding of it is that there are some people who are just obvious leaders and they come to recognize one another as the obvious leaders of, of, of the movement. And, um, and it's sort of a, mut a mutual recognition society. There are people who may be self-appointed. And there are some people who may be grifters. And so there may be quite a spectrum of people who may call themselves apostles. But for the movement that we're trying to describe, it's actually a, a considered process of being recognized as a leader. And what's important to understand about these apostles is that they hear directly from God. And God speaks through them and they speak for him. And I've been present when leading apostles uh, did that very thing. There'd be an event going on, the music stops, I'm getting a word from God, and then and everybody leans forward, breathless, what's God going to tell us through his apostle right now? And uh, then the word comes forward. And uh, sim it's similar to what happens with the prophets. Now, the prophets are not fortune tellers, right? They're not supposed to be predicting the future. You know, they can't predict that Donald Trump was going to be president, although some strayed beyond their, uh, uh, their mission and did that very thing. And some are sticking to their guns on that. But, um, but the idea is that the prophet, you know, had, understands what God's intentions are and says that this is what the church or individuals should be doing. Um, and uh, they often get words directly from God as well. As you note in your article, Frederick, uh, many within the NAR see themselves engaged in spiritual warfare. And, you know, this idea of being in a battle of good verse, versus evil on earth, you know, isn't really on the margins anymore. Uh, locally, we had a Moms for Liberty leader, Jamie Tromba, in an interview with Face the Culture podcast hosted by 
Kim Kennedy and Pastor Steve Gruen say that we're definitely in a battle of good and evil at this point. Um, and that language and framing was prominent throughout the group's national summit in, in Philly at the end of June and early July. Then in Central Bucks School District, there's a school board member, Damper Cannon, who, while a candidate, said at a school board meeting, right now, we, we, as we speak, there are demonic adults recruiting, brainwashing, and participating in unconscionable behaviors with children. Every one of you know it. And then more prominently, um, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, who is a presidential candidate for the Republican Party, has even paraphrased a passage from Ephesians 6 in the New Testament in stump speeches across the country. But just replacing the devil with the left, one thing that he said to uh, scores of his followers are, you got to be ready for battle. So put on the full armor of God, take a stand against the left's schemes, Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You will face fire from flaming arrows, but the shield of faith will protect you. How did this happen? How, how, how is this so mainstream and embedded um, you know, within the larger right? And how dangerous is this kind of you know, apocalyptic good versus evil framing? Well, it's been coming along for a long time. And, you know, we'll, we'll casually use the term like demonization, right, to, to vilify people. But we're usually meaning vilification. When we talk about, when these folks are talking about demons and demonization, they mean literally people are infested with demons, with satanic agents, whether they know it or not. And so anybody who's outside of their uh, Christian community, outside of what they call the kingdom, you know, is potentially, uh, you know, satanically inspired or influenced. So that, and so that could be, uh, it could be, you know, non-Pentecostal Republicans, it could be Democrats, liberals, feminists, and, you know, just uh, government officials just doing their jobs, you know, uh, filling out social security forms and the like, uh, because that's not God's government. And so if you're not carrying out what uh, the presumed intentions of God are, you know, you're falling outside the kingdom. And so the warfare that we're talking about, the spiritual warfare, it's dealt with supposedly on a, on a supernatural and, and prayer level, right? You're battling the dynamic forces in the heavenlies, but because the heavenlies uh, are also influencing the things that happen on earth, the question always is, at what point does the battle that DeSantis and the apostles talk about, you know, become physical, right? And uh, the idea of the, need, the, the the warfare rhetoric is just shot through with everything that we're talking about here. And uh, you could say, well, that's just a lot of hyperbole. You know, Christians are always talking like that. Onward, Christian soldiers, you know, marching as to war is the famous hymn. It's like, well, as to war, not literally war. One might say that. Um, on the other hand, war exists. And sometimes it's carried out, you know, in the name of Christianity. And in this case, the, the mantle of the authority of the kingdom of God is to, is to fight the demonic forces in the here and now. And the, the rhetoric around these things is escalating and being more specific and more urgent than I've ever heard it before. And this movement was also involved um, you know, in the planning and execution of January 6th and the, the attack on, this, on the Capitol, um, which you note in your article you know, as well as the fact that there actually is kind of an accelerationist sect 
within the NAR um, who maybe see violence um, as potential as a potential tool to achieve their revolutionary goals for the country and the world. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there was a part of me that uh, didn't expect that. And to see these folks who, you know, I, I, I take seriously as a, as, a, as a lay scholar and a journalist uh, uh, looking at these things. So to see leading apostles, you know, working with the likes of Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and having White House meetings, you know, that's a, that's a step beyond the ordinary uh, uh, transactions of politics, right? There are always religious leaders in the White House, you know, um, name your administration. But, uh, but this one took on a different part. So that there was a, a bit of the normal transactions of, politi- of politics going on, but translated into this, uh, into this revolutionary you know, insurrection that took place you know, on national television. That was an astounding thing to see. You know, we saw religious rallies in, in, the, in the run-up to January 6th. We saw the, the, the Jericho march in which people marched around the Capitol and the Supreme Court blowing shofars in emulation of, uh, of what God asked the Israelite army to do in the Old Testament to, in order to, uh, to they were going to conquer the walled city of Jericho. And uh, God said, march around the city seven times and blow shofars. And God bl- blew in the walls of the city. And then the army came in and the Israelite army came in and slaughtered everyone inside those walls. It was, an act, it was a genocidal act. And the shofars were the were the uh, were the uh, were, were God's call. That was the warning that God's God's forces are coming. Watch out! And so, when these folks are marching around the Capitol, blowing shofars and calling it a Jericho march, it's a powerful uh, metaphor. Some literal some literal things happened, but you know they didn't come in you know with, with swords and, and and guns. But nevertheless, the idea that that. That's the, the biblical image that they're calling upon when they're doing their politics is an extraordinary thing. And I think uh, an historic development in terms of what that movement is about and the relationship to contemporary politics, because January 6th is far from over. So Pennsylvania is seen as the kind of key state uh, for the NAR and its revolutionary theocratic plans for the country and the world. One of their main, you know, prayer warriors um, in the Commonwealth is Abia Bildness. Could you talk a little bit about her and her Pennsylvania Apostolic Prayer Network? Sure. Um, uh, Abby Abelness was, uh, uh, is an apostle. It's not, not a, it's, she has the office of apostle within uh, the fivefold ministry we were talking about earlier. And she was commissioned commissioned in an Oklahoma-based uh, uh, apostolic network headed by this guy, John Benefield. Uh, but she's a part of several apostolic networks that have converged to create uh, a political, I would call it a political network in Pennsylvania to accomplish their purposes. They would call, they call it a prayer network. And their main activity is getting together for what they call intercessory prayer. And that's uh, praying against the demonic forces. <laughs> Um, and to rally God's forces and uh, to help to uh, define what Christians should be doing to build the kingdom in the here and now. They've been trying to create uh, uh, chapters in all 67 counties in the state. 
uh, to carry these things out. It's not clear where they've gotten to 67 yet, but they're well, <clears throat> excuse me, well along the way. And uh, it's one of those things that's hard to see by contemporary political measures because it's you know, people on, on the telephone, people having Zoom calls, doing what they're doing, and then spreading out into their communities and doing it without necessarily you know, flying flags or uh, stating that, this, that, that these things are what they're doing. So is there an element of stealth to it? Maybe, but it may just be that that's just the way they operate. And society isn't, uh, uh, is not schooled in how to see these things. And so uh, that's why when we had the Doug Bastriano campaign for governor, nobody could figure, oh, where is the campaign? He hardly has any staff. He hardly has any money. You know, where's all this support coming from? And it was through the apostolic networks that were organizing on their own, you know, without filing campaign finance reports and, and uh, just doing what they're doing. And uh, I think this is a, a kind of a benchmark <clears throat> in the way that a lot of contemporary conservative politics is going to be looking at Pennsylvania beyond. And and so her her goal really is to conquer the government mountain, which is part of yes. the seven mountains um, within the NAR. And they see that as a way of achieving God's dominion on earth. Can you kind of explain a little bit about this idea of the seven mountains what and what they are? Well, sure. The, the very streams of uh, conservative evangelicalism that came together to form the NAR and the broader Christian right have a, a vision of dominion. And, uh, and to read some of the theological texts, you, could, you have to have multiple PhDs to understand what they're talking about. So they understood that. And so they need to have, create a more accessible vehicle for uh, people to understand what they meant by dominion and what it would mean for their role in carrying it out. So this, the idea of seven mountains of dominion uh, is a more of a market, it's kind of a marketing mechanism, which you break down uh, a global vision of Christian division in, into, the, into seven mountains, metaphorical mountains, of government, education, family, religion, uh, business, and arts and entertainment. And uh, so that way there's, people can find, find a mission, right? For some people with it might be arts and entertainment. So you see a lot of Christian musicians, so like say Sean Foyt, who are conquering the, uh, that mountain. It may interface with other mountains, but that's okay. That's his main, that's his main vehicle. So yeah, in the case of, uh, of uh, Abby Abelness, uh, she's a, uh, you know, working very closely with politicians in the state legislature and and uh, and uh, and people of, you know seeking elected office, so uh, she led a uh, what was called uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Legislative Prayer Caucus, which was part of a, a national effort called Project Blitz, under the rubric of the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, and uh, uh, and they had a a packet of model legislation that they were working from to, they could riff off of that and advance legislation in the, legis in the Pennsylvania legislature and elsewhere. And she's the state director of that. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of Christian right entities feed into that and work off of the model bills. Uh, but she's a remarkable figure because she's not just a religious leader, not just an apostle, right? She's a political leader and a lobbyist in a way that you don't see. You know, she's a former professor of uh, uh, behavioral psychology at the Hershey Medical Center, and she doesn't look and talk like the stereotype of a, of a big ego evangelist, right? She's soft-spoken and thoughtful 
and um, you know, it looks like a soccer mom most of the time. So he he can go 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 through the halls of the legislature, and people don't know don't know who she is. I, I almost think that makes her more effective, right? Kind of being staying under the radar, um, and and not just being so bombastic. You know, and, and in Pennsylvania, you know, we we're talking about the Seven Mountains. I mean, the education one is just kind of like front and center with what we're seeing with the with the school boards, um, you know, mm-hmm. with groups like Moms for Liberty trying to kind of seize power within these school boards, as well as like groups like the PA Family Institute um, and their legal arm, the Independence Law Center, kind of offering like pro bono services uh, to various school districts across the state in order to kind of shape policy within their Christian, I would say, like ultra-conservative worldview. And it's important to interject here, too, that the Pennsylvania Family Institute and its various uh, uh, entities is a part of a national network of, of, of the same kind of groups that exist in at least 35 states. And they're affiliated with the Family Research Council and focus on the family. Uh, and uh, so they're able to learn from each other, you know, take policies and political activities that work in one place and, you know, plant them elsewhere. So it's, uh, uh, it's important not to see any of these things in isolation because they're all part of some, a national thing, even though they may have a particular role in Pennsylvania. So as you know, in the article, Frederick, um, Abby said that we as Pennsylvania um, are the seed of a nation and God has blessed us as a special place. And, and then Doug Mastriano um you know, kind of like piggybacked on that, saying that we hold the keys for this nation. Um, and they're not alone in that thinking within the within the broader national NAR movement. Why Pennsylvania? Why, why does Pennsylvania have such prominence, um, you know, within their, uh, you know, theocratic vision for the country? Well, it's because they've, they've chosen uh, the, the original vision of uh, of. William Penn, the, the founder of Pennsylvania, and his words on the idea of Pennsylvania being a, 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 a holy experiment and being the seed of the nation. And uh, so they're, they've been building on that. They think that for a lot of reasons, the holy seed was, was thwarted. But they, also, they see that William Penn's vision and the original governmental structure and philosophy of Pennsylvania as a uh, uh, they try to have it both ways. They see it as sort of the the, the grandfather of uh, the American Constitution, but on the other hand, they're also saying that the uh, at least many of them, when they're being more open, will say that you know America didn't get it right. You know, Washington D.C. and the Constitution and the founding fathers. Well, they were a bunch of deists and and a bunch of masons, and really, we really have to restart. And they mean so. The idea of what happened in January sixth was. For many of them, was a part of tearing down what was in order to create something new. And uh, Pennsylvania is thought to be the place where uh, the new nation, you know, with uh, carrying forward uh, Penn's seed, <laughs> Penn's holy seed, uh, would, uh, would, uh, would, would be the place where that would sprout. And uh, the idea of uh, uh, the metaphor of the Keystone State, or the keystone in an arch is like that V-shaped stone at the top of the arch that balances the whole thing and allows it to uh, to, to be freestanding. So Pennsylvania is seen as, as the keystone state in that sense, because uh, they have both the keystone and the holy seed metaphors going at the same time. But, uh, but yeah, 
uh, the, uh, the idea for taking the seed uh, globally and creating the new kind of Christianity they want to create and the new kind of God's governance begins in Pennsylvania. And you'll hear Abby talking about uh, the governmental shift. So the idea of the governmental shift is you have to have the right kind of Christians in government to make the shift happen. And that's uh, and she surrounded herself with a, a number of such people already. So let's go, let's say, two, three, four decades into the future and, you know, imagine the worst, that the NAR is successful in transforming the nation. What does society look like um, if they're able to kind of execute their vision? Are we talking like Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale or something maybe not quite as extreme as that? Well, the way that they would talk about it and a lot of what they have to say, it sounds uh, very appealing. It sounds uh, uh, downright progressive and Christian in the, in, the, in the best sense that people would think of Christianity, so that uh, there wouldn't be any, any poverty, there wouldn't be any crime, it would be, uh, uh, there'd be racial equality and justice, and there'd be women in, in equality and in leadership positions. And you think, well, well who, who wouldn't want that, right? So it's a very utopian vision that they hold to, and very idealistic one. And uh, you could hear it at the, the sincerity in, uh, in Apostle Abelness and others who speak to these things. But, uh, but then the other shoe falls, right? It's like, well, even if you were to achieve that, right, it's only, it's only meaningful for those who are in the kingdom. So if you haven't converted to the right kind of Christianity, it doesn't matter what else you are, right? If you're the wrong kind of Christian, if you're, if you're an atheist, if you're a Jew, if you're not in the kingdom, you're out, and you're going to be a second-class citizen at best, and uh, depending on what kind of demonic influence uh, uh, you may be seen as holding, you know, you may have to be executed. You said something earlier that struck me. You said that, you know, society isn't schooled and kind of like seeing these things that are happening, you know, with, within the NAR movement, and the threats that they pose. And, you know, part of the problem is kind of the media is, you know, not doing a, a good enough job um, just kind of like, dedicating the resources to providing reporting that offers depth and breadth so that, you know, people um, both locally and nationally can kind of like truly understand what this movement is and, and, and how prominent it, it's actually becoming. One is, why do you think still that, that, that the media is kind of like slow to um, really pick up on this? And then, and second, um, you know, are you doing anything? Are there organizations doing anything, reaching out to kind of like media to try to, you know, help reporters who might not have the, the knowledge of experts like yourself um, in order for them to kind of be equipped and, and be able to kind of report on this accurately and thoroughly? Well, let's start with the last part first. Uh, uh, I, I talk to reporters all the time, <laughs> try, try to help them as best I can. You know, in fairness to to journalists and to everybody else, uh, this stuff is hard and it's complicated. I'm learning new stuff all the time that I wish I understood years ago. And it's been growing up in, <laughs> in plain sight. It's newish. It's only a few decades old in terms of kind of the theological direction and coherence and uh, capability, you know, political capability that, uh, that they've achieved. And... 
Pentecostals, even within the evangelical world, were kind of treated as second-class citizens. Right? The, these were the holy rollers, and other un- unflattering terms. And uh, you know, I, I know people who, uh, when I tell them about it, I say, oh, I bet there's a Pentecostal church just within a few miles of your house. And no, no, it couldn't possibly be. And then we drive there and say, well, there it is. It's just it's a thing that's gone unseen, right? And poorly understood. So we've talked about some things that sound fantastic, sound strange, couldn't possibly be, right? And it's so strange that how could we be that concerned? And how come Clarkson's so alarmed, right? And uh, and uh, and so there's a certain amount of denial that goes on, right? How could I mean? How could I, a well-informed person, not have heard of this? You know, or even if I've heard of it, believe that it's become a major force, you know, in our society and in our political life. It's, it's just hard to come to terms with that. And so even if your reporter gets it, you may have an editor who doesn't. <laughs> and even if you have an editor who does, the editor is wondering whether their readers will get it and uh, what kind of responses they're going to have. So there's a lot of layers of, uh, of resistance uh, to thinking about it and talking about it. Yeah, you have, to, you have to learn a lot and you have to be confident in what you know in order to go forward with these things. And um, very, uh, fewer people we would like are willing to go out on that limb, I guess is the way we put it. But I'm not picking on the media here. It's true of the scholarly community. It's true of the politically activist community. It's particularly true of the Democratic Party. You know, it doesn't want to see and hear about it, even though... As you describe, it's dominating school board discussions and races. And even though the Republican candidate last time, although he lost badly, he was, he was of this world. And uh, the Republican Party doesn't understand how he got the nomination. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of taking for granted uh, uh, that, uh, they're, that they're going to continue to lose because they're too weird, too extreme. Well, that's not necessarily so. They've gotten this far. Uh, finally, Frederick, can you advise folks on how to effectively organize against this movement maybe suggest some groups resources um, tactics that they can turn to and adapt well i mean the first thing you have to have is some basic knowledge so i'm I'm grateful that the buck county beacon and your podcast is talking about these things that's it's important and people need to start thinking about it and talking about it uh, what I tell people to talk about any of these things is you have to have some common body of knowledge and you have to have some common vocabulary in order to talk about it, right? And apply it to the things you already know and or to your current circumstances. So uh, the places I write for and political research associates uh, where I work and, uh, and the related entity religion dispatches uh, write about these things all the time. You find most of my work there. And uh, Right Wing Watch, which is part of People for the American Way, reports on these things all the time. So uh, those are reliable places where you can begin to get the knowledge and the, and, and the vocabulary to go with it. And uh, But I have to say, even within the, uh, sort of the, the, the liberal uh, religious community related activist groups, is they're not really talking about this. <laughs> and uh, they're talking a great deal about Christian nationalism. But one of the problems that uh, they have in talking about Christian nationalism, they usually mean white Christian nationalism. And when you start to talk about the NAR, you're talking about a, a group that's you know, not just American. It's not about American exceptionalism. And American nationalism is a complicated matter, as we started to address. You know, and it's, uh, they're multiracial, multiethnic, multinational, 
and they have women in leadership. So they, it doesn't fit with the narrative and the stereotypes that are driving uh, our main discussions about the Christian right and what to do about it. So, uh, so that's going on too <laughs> at the same time. And so all of us who are following these things and people who are in communities affected by, say, the school board politics are going to have to look to uh, the kinds of uh, uh, places to, uh, to, to learn about it and begin to apply what they're learning to their situation on their own because they're not going to get enough help from the, from the national organizations who are talking about Christian nationalism and Christian nationalism alone. Frederick, thanks so much for coming on and kind of you know, helping us understand better what, what exactly it is that we're up against. Um, you know, I, for one, am really appreciative of your work that you do, and we'll be sharing links to your work as well as other resources in the show notes. But thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. And hopefully we can have you back on in the future. I'd love to do it. Thank you for doing all your good work as well. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McGlego, Editor-in-Chief and Host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. Music